Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, have we got a treat for you today. It is time to jump into a listener mail episode purely about squirrels. That's right. We put out a, what was a two-parter, right, about uh-huh. squirrels and uh, their, their their bloody secrets and the mysteries surrounding them and some of the, uh, the, 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 the folkloric ideas that have risen up around them and uh, – and what the science actually has to say. I like how you were like, oh, a two-parter, right? As if you don't remember and as if you haven't been thinking about squirrels in those two episodes <laughs> every day since then. It's it's true. I, I, in my own house, it's been quite a, a squirrel odyssey since those episodes came out because mm-hmm. – uh, uh, the, the first episode I, I had my family listen to, and I think I, I, I mentioned how we were watching a lot of squirrel activity at our bird feeders. And uh, so a few different things occurred. So for starters, I was talking about, about the scugs mm-hmm. uh, and was referring to the squirrels uh, uh, as an entire species as scugs. Yes. And uh, in doing so, I managed to get the word scug kind of like partially banned from uh, my household. Oh, no. What's yeah. wrong with uh, scugs? Well, me and my son were using it and, and my wife, she was like, I don't know. This this doesn't sound like a friendly term to use <laughs> a, for squirrels. And and, and uh, she eventually like, convinced me. I still think of them as scugs, but I, I catch myself uh, – and uh, and find myself referring to them as squirrels more often. So that term comes from – we started using it in the episode because of that letter by, from Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. uh, describing the squirrel, his pet squirrel Mungo, I think, that got killed by a dog. And he referred to squirrels in the letter as scugs. I think with – if I understand the reasoning correctly – it seems to be that Franklin thought Skug was like a common name applied to pet squirrels the same way you might look at a bunch of dogs and say, look at all those rovers. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So really, we're, we're, it's like we've taken it upon ourselves and our listeners have taken it upon themse- themselves to, to rebrand squirrels as Skugs. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I guess part of it too for me is like realizing like, okay, I have this first grader. Do I really want to – to have him grow up and be the, the sort of person who refers to squirrels as scugs and nobody around him knows what he's talking about. I think we're bringing it back. <laughs> People will know because of us. Possibly, yeah. I also have found that in response to those episodes, I've actually grown um, more affectionate for the squirrels that mm-hmm. feed it our, our, our bird feeder. I've, I've made sure to put out water for them a lot because the, the bird fountain we have, the birds don't really mess with it all that much. But the squirrels will delicately uh, uh, like – uh, lower themselves down to it and drink water from it. And it's so delightful to watch because, you know, normally squirrels are just scurrying about, fighting with each other, uh, <laughs> you know, looking up for for predators and they're just constant in motion. But when they drink the water, there's something uh, something precious about them. You appreciate them more because you know more about the violence and the predation and all that because it's because you can see the shadow now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when you, when you see somebody's dark side, uh, it's the anti hero effect in the movies, you know, where you suddenly, by seeing the dark side, you actually care more about them. I should also say that our bird feeder eventually attracted a rat, uh-huh. and I got to see, or I got to, it's not, not like it's a, a special treat, but I witnessed a, a scuffle between a squirrel and a rat. Who won? Oh, the squirrel. The yeah. squirrel drove the rat away. And I think part of that just comes down to, like, squirrel nature versus rat nature. Like, the rat is going to, obviously going to be, hey, I'm not, that's fine but with me, I'll come back and eat it during the night. <laughs> uh, and the squirrel, but the squirrel is more like, no, I'm eating this now. You will go away from me. So you didn't put them in a box and make them fight like that guy who wrote into JAMA? <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no. I think we're still what, – what is canon now? Are we saying canon is that that didn't actually happen and that was some 14-year-old making things up? Uh, I, I want to believe that, but who knows? <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we should get right into some of your excellent, wonderful messages about squirrels. Robert, would you like to read us this email from Diane to start us off here? All right, let's do it. Uh, well, first, let's call the, the robot over here. I almost oh, forgot yeah. Carney. Uh, Carney just covered in squirrels. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Diane writes, hi, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to The Bloody Beast Part 1. Your very interesting discussion about squirrels that have been observed uh, displaying carnivorous behavior. 
It brought to mind an incident I witnessed in the summer of 2004. I was on an archaeological excavation in the Orkney Islands, an archipelago between Scotland and Norway. At the moment, I can't recall which island my fellow archaeologist and I were on, but I think it was Papa Westry. As we were walking up a hill looking toward the sea, we saw a sheep nibbling on the flipper of a dead seal that had washed up on the shore. A bit odd, I grant you, but animals that live in environments that offer minimal resources, such as many of the islands that make up the Orkneys, will find ways to supplement whatever their diet is lacking. I'm certain the sheep will never adapt to actually heading out to sea to hunt for a seal meal, but they have no qualms about eating those unfortunate enough to have died of other causes. I'm not sure what the meat-eating squirrels are compensating for, but I look forward to hearing part two. Thank you for consistently informative and entertaining shows, Dr. Diane. And then she includes her, her last name, which we tend to edit out of the show. But I include that just because she's a doctor. It's worth noting. Yeah, I, I love this story about the uh, the opportunistic uh, carnivory of, of sheep. But it does make me wonder, OK, so we believe that whales came from a former terrestrial tetrapod mammal that slowly over time adapted itself to a more and more aquatic lifestyle until mm-hmm. until they just became – fully water-dwelling organisms. Could sheep do the same thing? And what would the the cetacean equivalents of future sheep descendants be? Well, it also makes me think back to our uh, episode on uh, on Cambrian life forms and mm-hmm. getting into the idea of essentially the invention of predation. Yeah. The, the uh, and, and I, I put invention in quotation marks here because obviously uh, simple organisms are not consciously inventing anything, but a trend emerges where one organism is simply consuming another. Yeah, and this is a hypothesis about what caused what's known as the Cambrian explosion. And and there are some people who I think uh, dispute to what extent it actually should be considered an explosion or not. But basically during the Cambrian period, about 500 million years ago, we suddenly see this proliferation of speciation events, many different animal body forms arising from previously out of, you know, not much. Uh, So where does all of this sudden animal diversity come from? One hypothesis is, well, it was the introduction of predation that suddenly set off these evolutionary arms races and drove animals to evolve defenses and the different kinds of defenses they evolved or predation tactics they evolved uh, gave rise to all this diversity of life. Hey, and speaking of uh, Cambrian life forms, uh, uh, our store has a new T-shirt slash sticker slash wherever you want to put this image. Uh, It's our logo, uh, you know, that abstract symbol that we have surrounded by Cambrian life forms in some ancient sea. Robert, I... Love your dedication to plugging merch. Uh, that That is right. Remember that we've got merch. If you've got money and you want to spend it on some of our merch, go go merch up. Go to our store. Hey, it's fun stuff. We would not we would not have it in the store if, uh, if we didn't think it was fun. Okay. Here's another message we got. This one is from our listener, Victoria. Victoria writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. One of my first jobs about 15 years ago was as an animal care attendant at the Toronto Wildlife Center, a nonprofit organization that treats and rehabilitates sick and injured wildlife. I learned a healthy fear of squirrels while I was there. Whenever we were handling squirrels, we would wear thick leather gloves, often layered over chainmail gloves. I once got bit through the gloves. Thankfully, they did their job pretty well, but I could still sometimes feel the bite years later. I wasn't there for this particular incident, and so my secondhand memory of the story may be exaggerated, but I don't think so. But I remember a story of a time when a sparrow got loose in the room where the squirrel's cages were. The staff member working in there grabbed a net to recapture the loose bird, but before they were able to catch the fugitive, it landed on the outside of a squirrel cage. The squirrel inside managed to grab the sparrow through the cage bars and eat its face. Oh. Another interesting observation about unexpected carnivores from that job. At one point, we noticed that all of the admin staff at the organization were vegetarian or vegan, while all of the animal care staff were meat eaters. The prevailing theory is that when you work closely with the animals, you realize that they'd eat you if they had a chance, so you don't feel bad about eating their brethren. Looking forward to your next episode, Victoria. Well, that's a wonderful story. I mean, it does also make me think back to some of the – 
the differences between uh, uh, wild squirrels and squirrels in captivity. So conceivably, and I'm kind of reading into, I have no idea how long these squirrels had been in uh, in their cages, but mm-hmm. if they had been deprived of any uh, you know uh, natural ways to uh, take in certain nutrients, they may have been essentially starved for them. So of course you would tuck into a, a bird face. That is so metal. It <laughs> ate the bird's face. Well, I, you know, we're attached to faces as uh, as humans, but we have to kind of strip away our <laughs> our, our our human com- complications here and realize the the face is it's delicious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Nathan. Nathan writes in and says, "Love the show, guys. Keep up the great work." I'm a local pharmacist here in Atlanta and had to show you this squirrel video I took at my house in Grant Park. My favorite episodes are the squirrel double-parter and the 2001 episode. Also, really like the salamander interview since I'm a biology lover. Uh, Feel free to hit me up if you have any drug questions. (laughs) Thanks, Nate. And then Nate attaches a video that appears to be a squirrel going to town on a barbecue rib bone. (laughs) Now, one thing that's true, I think there was a blog for a while that was just like bones of Atlanta that was like uh, just images. Of discarded bones. Of discarded barbecue bones on the sidewalk. I mean, there's good barbecue restaurants here, so people often will walk around with a clamshell full of barbecue and just throw the bones down. Well, let's see, Grant Park, which which barbecue restaurant would it have been? I don't know, but... uh, no, I, I don't know the answer. But they're, they're like there's barbecue restaurants near, you know, my house. Walking the dog can sometimes be perilous uh, <laughs> because like there's just barbecue rib bones and chicken bones and stuff like that hanging out. And this appears to be a video of a squirrel that got its hands on a rib bone and, and is just gnawing like there's no tomorrow. This is a, this reminds me again of what we were talking about with squirrels eating the flesh of roadkill mm-hmm. and the, the artificial – uh, nature of that situation. This is a very, this is a similar situation. Like due to human civilization, we not only have dead animals killed in the road, we also have lots of roadside bones with flesh still hanging off the bone and some delicious, uh, you know, red sauce as well. Okay, next message. This is actually one of a genre of messages that we got uh, from listeners who wanted to correct something I said. So I said uh, squirrels are now found pretty much everywhere except Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And some of our New Zealander listeners disagreed. They said, for example, Liam writes in saying, love your show so much and all the shows on the How Stuff Works Network, but I absolutely had to let you know that there are no squirrels here in little old New Zealand. (laughs) And I myself have never seen one. So jealous you see them every day. Keep up the great work. And thanks for giving me great podcasts to fall asleep to every night. I hope you did not fall asleep during the uh, squirrel castration myth episode. (laughs) Uh, Because, man, what kind of dreams would that produce? Oh, now here's a question for everybody. If there are no squirrels in New Zealand, uh, that also means there are no squirrels in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies. Oh, no. But I'm trying to think back. I recently reread The Hobbit with my son. I can't remember if Tolkien ever mentioned squirrels. Like, there are a lot of scenes of, you know, our characters traveling through uh, woodland areas. I'm thinking surely he mentioned squirrels at some point or another. Surely he did. I'd love to hear from anyone out there who can... uh, uh, who can answer that question for me? And if there are no What's, squirrels, then what does that mean for those movies? Don't we need to go back in like the next big wave of CGI that is applied to those films? They've got to add some CGI squirrels to make it right. What is the elfish word for squirrel? <laughs> Skoogadoogadoo or something probably. Skoogdock. <laughs> Should we take a break, Robert? Let's do. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more squirrel emails. That's all this episode is going to be. All right, we're back. Okay, we got an amazing message, a couple of messages from our listener, Bevy. Bevy Bevy really brought it. So she writes, Hi, guys. I'm writing with some thoughts about your episode on squirrels. However, let me start off by saying I'm a huge fan of your show. I listen to and absolutely adore a whole bunch of podcasts in the How Stuff Works family. But you guys are definitely one of my faves. Oh, thank you. That's some high praise because the How Stuff Works Network has so many wonderful shows. Well, thank you, Bevy. Uh, Bevy writes, I volunteer at a wildlife shelter for about eight hours a week. And right now, in the Pacific Northwest at least, it is the height of baby season for eastern gray and 
Douglas squirrels. In fact, now that our baby possums are all grown up, our nursery is currently exclusively filled with baby squirrels and one chipmunk. Aww. Most of the babies ended up with us because they were orphaned, though in some unfortunate cases they were brought in by well-meaning folks who didn't realize the parents were likely just off-gathering food. Oh, yeah, no. this is a common uh, this is a common thing that comes up with um, with wildlife rescue groups is that a lot of times you uh, people or think they're doing the right thing by bringing the animal in, while in reality they should have perhaps just waited uh, for the, uh, the, the the parent to to do its thing. Yeah, so I guess don't do that. <laughs> Uh, so picking up with Bevy's message, I have some theories about why squirrels are sometimes mistakenly thought to be castrated, although the fact that their testicles only descend during mating season is probably a larger factor in the myth than what's contained in my hypotheses. However, the following may help outline some contributing factors that can help explain why some hunters claim to have observed fresh castration wounds on juvenile males. Basically, I have four ideas which are as follows. Man, four ideas about squirrel castration. This is rich. Number one, at least in juveniles, the anuses of both sexes don't really look like anuses. Instead, they look like small red dots and are located directly beneath the genitals, right near where one might expect the testicles to be. Though it would be a strange mistake to make, I suppose it would be possible that the untrained eye could mistake the anus for a small scab resulting from a recent castration, especially if you were already expecting to find such a wound. The fact that the alleged castration wounds have been described as being remarkably cleanly cut makes it even more likely that the surprisingly un-anusy appearance of the anus could be misinterpreted as the remains of a juvenile's testicles. That sounds reasonable. I'd say uh, point number one, already a home run. Number two. Why am I so intimately acquainted with the appearance of squirrel butts, you might ask? <laughs> well, when caring for baby squirrels, you have to be sure to regularly stimulate each baby's anus slash genitals in order to help them poop slash pee. We typically do this using a wet cotton ball to gently wipe the squirrel's bellies, but in the wild, the mother uses her tongue to achieve the same result. In fact, it's even possible, although probably a bit of a stretch, that some misinterpreted castration wounds were the result of accidental biting on the mother's part. This makes sense as well. This is a solid theory. And both of these really drive home the fact that if you were watching any wild animal or even a domestic animal and you were just expecting very anthropomorphic or sort of Beatrix Potter storybook <laughs> um, behavior, you're going to be disappointed because these are animals and they're going to – uh, behave as such. They're, and they're not going to behave necessarily like you expect them to. Well, also like charging animal behaviors with associations to human taboos mm -hmm. because like the idea of a mother licking the, their offspring's anus, that that's like so weird in a human context that you see an animal doing that and you think like there must be something sinister going on. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, speaking of which, I, I, I'm definitely hoping that we get to do a Thanksgiving episode on um, poop eating and animals because this is another example of something that is uh, certainly a taboo in human circles. Uh, but there are some wonderful examples uh, from the animal world uh, in which it is uh, regularly practiced and is a, a part of being a healthy, young uh, member of that species. We already smashed the cuteness of squirrels into oblivion. We're about to take bunnies from you as well. <laughs> No, no, no. I take that back. Squirrels are still cute. They're still cute, uh, even though they sometimes eat flesh and brains and whatever. All right. So back to Bevy's email. Uh, number three, point number three. In the episode, I believe that you expressed doubt at the theory that some of the misinterpreted wounds were the result of other baby squirrels trying to suckle on the males mistaking their privates for mother's nipples. It's possible that I made that doubt up, though. No, I uh, – that was what one, – one author wrote into JAMA when they were having the big late 19th century squirrel castration debate. Mm -hmm. uh, one author wrote in with this as a hypothesis and I was trying – I couldn't quite tell if the person who wrote this was joking because it sounded like it might be a joke. Uh, but he was saying like, well, maybe it's other squirrels in the nest trying to get nutrition and mistaking uh, – well, you, you know – so, here, picking up with Bevy's email. 
It's possible that I made this doubt up, though. I was trying to clean up some particularly rank possum poop while I was listening to the episode, so I was understandably a bit distracted. However, I think that it's actually a valid theory to consider. Although I haven't observed it myself, I've heard from other volunteers at the shelter that it's relatively common for possum infants to try to suckle on each other if they have no mother present. I've never heard or seen of this behavior in baby squirrels, but it's definitely a possibility. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so maybe that uh, that writer was not joking. Number four, my final note regarding squirrel castration is that at least in juveniles, male and female squirrels look very similar. Interestingly, to me at least, though maybe I'm just weird, this does not mean that a male's penis is hard to spot, but actually the reverse. Females instead look a bit like they have penises. I'm not quite sure why that is since it seems less likely that females would have vulvas that protrude from the body than it would be for males to have penises that stayed close to the body. Well, it wouldn't be that uh, crazy. I mean, we I, I think we've talked about hyenas on this show before and you oh, have a yeah. similar situation with female hyenas being the, the larger of the species and having some similar characteristics with their, uh, their sex organs. Yeah. Uh, so she continues, I don't know if the sexes remain difficult to differentiate one once they reach adulthood, since adult squirrels are vicious little monsters whose butts I luckily don't have to deal with on a regular basis. But if they do, then in the very specific case of Hunter kills a male squirrel with descended testicles and then compares it side by side with a female, it might be conceivable to maybe think that the female was a male without testicles. Combine this with the possibility of misinterpreting the appearance of the anus and you've got yourself an urban legend in the making. I apologize for such a long email, but your episode was absolutely fascinating and completely sparked my interest. Keep up the good work, Bevy. Oh, and then Bevy also shared some uh, photos from the shelter with us. And then another, a follow-up from Bevy. Quote, I have an update on my email. I asked some of my fellow volunteers about squirrels suckling on each other, and it turns out it's quite common. In fact, we had to split a group of siblings up yesterday for that very reason. While I don't think the suckling would create raised areas on the skin, it could definitely explain scabs and other injuries on the genitals of juveniles. And that concludes Bevy's massive dissertation on squirrel anuses and genitals. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's exactly the kind of field report we were looking for. This was an awesome listener mail, Bevy. Thank you so much. Now, I just have to go back to our discussion of um, of barbecue bones for a second. <laughs> and isn't it interesting that, you know, that, that some humans might be thinking, oh, it's, I'm so creeped out because squirrels are actually eating meat. Uh, we, the species that have streets literally littered with the bones of the creatures <laughs> that we uh, consume as, as sometimes it's just mere snacks. Uh-huh. You know, it seems a little uh, absurd, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So, like, I'm waiting to get on the bus and I throw my barbecue bones on the sidewalk and that's normal. But if a squirrel <laughs> comes and picks it up, that's weird. All right, I have one I want to read here from Tony. Uh, Tony says, I was very pleasantly surprised to see two recent episodes dealing solely with squirrels. I've only listened to the first at the time I am writing this, but I had to immediately send out this email. My girlfriend and I recently moved into a new home, cue the horror music, and discovered a fair amount of squirrels roaming the property. Thinking they were adorable, we began feeding them. Uh-oh. Much to the chagrin of my fam of family members who told us we'd regret it. We ignored their warnings and continued to put out a buffet of choices each day. Corn, seeds, and unsalted in-the-shell peanuts we bought just for them. To make a long story short, the squirrels have become very demanding, and on some mornings there will be no fewer than six or seven on our deck begging for food. They'll run along the windowsill or sit on our lawn chairs. In some cases, a particularly aggressive squirrel will scratch at the door or even jump onto the screen and climb around until we provide nourishment. In the first attached attach picture, you will see a black squirrel on its hind legs begging. And in the second, a squirrel is on the screen, which you can't really see, making for a fascinating image. Thanks for the informative and entertaining shows. I'm off to listen to part two now. Uh, and that was uh, Tony uh, from a suburb of Chicago. Uh, we never heard from Tony again. After episode two. So I do not know if the squirrels eventually just bur burst into the house like Night of the Living Dead and just consumed everybody. They got him. Yeah. Now, he mentioned this photo. This is a photo of a squirrel climbing on the outside of a screen door, but you can't see the screen in the photo. So it just looks like a squirrel hovering upside down in the air <laughs> with its belly exposed. This is pretty good. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I, I feel 
sort of the same way with the, the squirrel feedings that were going on at our house. Because uh, for a while, I would when I would go to put out the the mealworms, uh, I think all they would have to hear is just the sound of the uh, the aluminum container that we keep them uh, keep the the food in, mm-hmm. and then six or seven would come and they would and there would be like a scuffle like which squirrel we'd even watch you know muse to to see like which squirrel is kind of the alpha squirrel that's able to fight off all the others so is it going to be the you know the slightly red-faced squirrel or the blondie squirrel it's certainly not going to be the the warble covered squirrel because uh, we I have gotten to see a couple of those there they've uh, we mentioned those in the, those episodes about how the, the bot flies uh, will affect them, and uh, they'll have these warbles in which the larvae are growing. Uh, yeah, we've, we've seen a couple of those. It was also very interesting to observe them the week or two before my family went on a trip to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Costa Rica being one of the parts of the world where you'll encounter the human bot fly that we that we discussed in the episode. So you know, you couldn't help but think in the back of your mind, like like, oh God, is this going to happen to me? Am I going to come back from Costa Rica with, with giant warbles in my neck full of uh, uh, larval spawn? Uh, fortunately, it didn't happen like that. Would have made a good episode, though. Yeah, I, I figured it was like, well, it would probably be good for the show if I got a, a bot fly. Uh, you know, we could even bust out some video of it. But thankfully, I didn't have to make that uh, that choice. Well, I'm a little sore at nature for denying us hashtag content. <laughs> All right, this next message comes to us from our listener, Emily. She writes, Good afternoon, guys. Huge fan of the show. I especially loved your squirrel episodes. As I was listening to you discuss the possibly carnivorous squirrels hunting down and eating deer, and to be clear, we we didn't really believe that story. No, that was the one that came to us uh, via the Russian media, as I recall. (laughs) Right. But Emily writes, First of all, I'd believe it. I then remembered that last winter, where I live in northern Wisconsin, it was quite a tough one for our wildlife friends. It was bitterly cold. We had several feet of snow, and the winter was very long. It continued to snow well into May. The deer population had had a particularly hard time. Around the time where vegetation should have been returning, the deer found only frozen dirt. They started starving off. The deer were desperate, and we observed some odd behaviors from them. The strangest was the deer appeared to become carnivorous. There were many reports of deer eating birds and squirrels. So if squirrels turn to hunting deer, the deer turn to hunting squirrels. The forest is a rough place. And she shares some videos she found online. Again, I'm a huge fan. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Emily. Yeah, I've actually heard about deer eating meat before. Uh, not not uh, predation and hunting, but like scavenging mm-hmm. from, from carcasses. It's surprising how many animals we think of as purely herbivorous will dive into some meat if if uh, if nature drives them to it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's all energy, right? All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Merle. Merle writes in and says, Robert and Joe, I just finished listening to both squirrel episodes and found them entertaining and informative. I trap squirrels for a living. I know this sounds uh, an odd job for the 21st century. However, it is also a very important job. Ground squirrels, as implied by their name, dig long and deep burrows. This is a fine way to avoid predators and is uh, excellent out in the wilderness. The problem occurs when they burrow into our levees and dams. When our waterway structures become unstable, flooding and mass property damage occurs, as well as possible loss of life. While I don't hate squirrels, I recognize the need to manage their population. Just to note, I live trap. Anything that isn't a ground squirrel is released. Love the show. Now, I love that bit of insight into just sort of the, um, uh, you know, the, the real-world ramifications of, uh, of squirrel activity uh, and that it, it is going to become necessary to, uh, to, to check their populations in some instances. Yeah, I can certainly see how that would be a big problem when they're when you're talking about levees and dams, though I just got a, a horrible parallel thought, which is like, uh, I bet there's some there's some uh, squirrel control going on in like California golf courses, right? Oh yeah, but there's a whole lot of unnatural things going on with uh, with uh, California golf courses. <laughs> to be sure, like, I, I'm picturing Caddyshack, but it's a but it's a ground squirrel. Oh yeah, Caddyshack. Well, the Caddyshack is a uh, you know not much nicer. Uh, maybe we can relate to Caddyshack. There's very right. little in the golfing world I can relate to, but I can relate to Caddyshack. Ground squirrels grooving to yacht rock, uh, yeah. chewing up golf courses on the West Coast. That go, I, go that for I can it. get behind. Yes, I'm on the squirrel side. All right, this one is from our listener. 
Trey. Uh, Trey says, you're welcome to share any of this info. Keep doing a great job. I am from Western North Carolina near Tennessee. I grew up with very old school grandparents. The first story is the skug hunt. We spent a lot of time hunting or cutting down trees. On several occasions during droughts, we would witness migrations. The floor would appear to be alive with so many gray squirrels on the move. Papaw said they would chase down prey as a pack. I never witnessed them killing anything, but Papaw would never lie. <laughs> Second story is about squirrels and castration. When it comes down to dominance, squirrels are amazing. I've witnessed on four occasions fights happening in the trees. Everything was a target, but the goal was to knock the other squirrel off to be eaten by the dogs. I don't know if I'd put that much uh, consciousness into it. Really. Yeah, like who put the dogs there? It's, yeah. The squirrels didn't. But anyway – some of them were smart enough to pick the terrain and would lure the other squirrels to their doom. Waiting below was the faithful dog watching for the falling easy prey. I have witnessed it at many locations because squirrels do a chattering noise before the attack. Also, watch a few videos on skinning and cleaning squirrels. No, the, thank you. The, the testicles do rise into the abdomen. Yes, we – yes, <laughs> they do. Uh, Trey says, the squirrel and ferret story is most likely BS. We certainly hope so. A cape squirrel, given the opportunity, will put somebody in the hospital from scratches. These deep lacerations often need stitches. I was shocked about the Grand Canyon story about squirrels climbing on people. I was I was shocked by that story <laughs> uh, as I was there to, to witness it. Uh, luckily, nobody was hurt. Now, I'm a little curious about uh, Papa's story about the, the floor of the forest being covered in squirrels. I mean – it sounds uh, like the ending to um, like a, 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 a Tennessee-based uh, weird fiction story from like the 30s, right? Well, what's that movie? Is like Willard where uh, the, the dad from Back to the Future is controlling an army oh, of yeah, rats? Crispin Glover, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that one. I remember uh, thinking he was creepy in it. So if Crispin Glover controls an army of rats to do his bidding, which actor controls an army of squirrels? Oh, you could have like a – it would be a squirrel lord. Uh, maybe I think a Christopher Walken could play that role maybe. How about Tim Curry, the Skug Lord? Yeah, yeah. Tim Curry could have played uh, the Skug Lord uh, at least a few decades back. Um, th this reminds me. In Dungeons and Dragons, you have uh, these uh, creatures called cranium rats. Uh, and they're uh, Oh, yeah. They're pretty great because they're – they're essentially just each one individually is just a rat, and they're uh, the a product of uh, the elithids, the mind flayers, uh -huh. uh, and they you know they'll go around and they're kind of spies for the elithids. One cranium rat, not that big of a deal, but if you have two cranium rats, well, they have the pooled uh, mind of two creatures. Three cranium rats have the pooled mind of three creatures. If you have a swarm of cranium rats then you have uh, – they all have one collective mind and then they take on all these additional psionic powers. Uh, so they become quite a, uh, a difficult creature to encounter if you encounter enough of them. Uh, I wonder if you could have a similar situation if the elithids were working uh, on the surface. You could have cranium squirrels uh, sending uh, you know, big – Big, uh, you know, rugs of squirrels sending psychic uh, uh, fireballs at their enemies. You going to work this into your next campaign? Uh, if they ever get back to the surface, they're all stuck in the Underdark. So it's just going to be probably rats from here on out. <laughs> it could be cranium ground squirrels that yeah. burrow all the way down. Okay, that could work. Yeah. yeah. I'll go with that. Okay, maybe we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we will finish up our uh, exploration of listener mail about squirrels. All right, we're back. You know, we were just talking about uh, Dungeons and Dragons, so uh, it, it's kind of uh, ironic that our next uh, bit of listener mail comes to us from uh, Lisa, I believe, or uh, Lise. L-I-S-E. I guess yeah. that's Lise or Lisa. At any rate, she says, uh, quote, I just finished listening to part one of this and wanted to thank you. I'm trying to come up with some creepy color text for my next RPG run, Fate Core, if you're keeping track. I'm I don't not, know what that I'm is. I'm not familiar with that one, but uh, I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, of uh, RPG gaming systems out there. And scheming carnivorous squirrels are just the ticket. Looking forward to scattering deer corpses and have had, that have had their sinews gnawed out uh, around the landscape. And squirrels hunting snakes and hoarding bones will also work really well. Excellent. I'm glad. Anytime we can inspire uh, an RPG campaign, I feel like we have, we've done a good job. The monsters of reality once again outstrip the uh, the surprising and wonderful nature of the monsters in the monster manual. <laughs> Indeed. Though I guess the deer corpses, that's probably not – that's probably not reality, is it? Probably not. Probably not. 
Okay, here's a fun one. This comes from our listener, Erica. Erica writes, hello. First, I want to say I love your podcast so much. I listen to it all the time at work. It's wonderful, and I'm so happy you guys are making it. Well, thank you for listening, Erica. Uh, she writes, growing up, I watched Arthur on PBS all the time. Robert, do you know the show? Uh, yeah, I know of it. Arthur the Aardvark. I think my, my son has watched it a little bit. Yeah. Is he the guy with glasses? Yeah, yeah, he has glasses. Sweaters. I, yeah, and I think if I remember correctly – he may have been one that was – one of the books about him was a Reading Rainbow book back in the day. Hmm. And uh, and then it eventually became its own series. I feel like the same thing happened with uh, The Magic School Bus. Oh, OK. Uh, I could be, could be wrong on Arthur though. Some of my fellow Reading Rainbow viewers will have to uh, chime in on that. Well, Erica says, uh, I watched Arthur on PBS all the time growing up. And as soon as you mentioned in part one that you were looking for horror movies about squirrels, it came to mind. Not the movie It. I, she just said It. Just Arthur, I guess referring okay. to Arthur, yeah. Uh, one episode focuses on this movie called The Squirrels, also the title of the episode from season 10. Most of the characters watched it and they were all afraid of squirrels for a while until they got over it and learned a valuable lesson about irrational fears. The next movie they all decide to watch is called The Birds. <laughs> <laughs> so in case you're interested in finding a recreation of The Squirrels or making your own, it would be a good jumping off point. Have a great day. Oh, you know, I actually uh, – we are we are recording this episode uh, before Halloween mm-hmm. and I, I think I may just have to look up that episode to show my son because, you know, Halloween's this weird time where we're kind of encouraging all these, uh, uh, you know, terrifying ideas and all and uh, it it is a good reminder, I think. Uh, at least for for young children, that you know we're we're engaging, we're leaning into a lot of irrational fears mm-hmm. this Halloween, and uh, you know we, we don't necessarily need to live in fear of, of the scugs. This this is kind of a tangent, but at what age do you generally think kids start learning to enjoy being scared? Like telling the difference between like unpleasant fear and pleasant fear. I don't know. I mean, just going boo uh, happens yeah. pretty early. So yeah. I feel like there are versions of it that kick in reasonably young uh, because ultimately, like, what's a, what's a jump scare? What are any of these things? But false positives, right? Mm-hmm. All right. This next one comes to us from Dan. Hello, gentlemen. I was excited to see your episodes on squirrels pop up in my feed, and I immediately knew I had to write you to share a personal squirrel experience that makes me shudder to this day. About 15 years ago, I lived in an apartment which had an old but functional grill on the back deck. There was a squirrel that lived near the apartment, which I came to know on sight. The squirrel seemed to enjoy being very disruptive around our apartment area. It would frequently go on our back deck and chew things up or knock over plants. Maintaining bird feeders was an impossibility. If we were grilling, I had to keep a watchful eye because uh, the squirrel would sneak up and take food. I responded by frequently throwing acorns or small pebbles at it. The longer we lived there, the more I threw them with bad intent. (laughs) One day I went out to use the grill. I turned the valve on the propane tank. I momentarily thought I heard something a little unusual, but I didn't think much of it. This obviously was poor thinking on my part. I then turned on the grill burner and proceeded to try to light the grill with the grill lighter and then a gas lighter to no avail. After probably close to two minutes of stubbornly trying to light the grill, I decided to investigate why it wasn't lighting. I turned off the grill burner, and I honed in on the unusual sound I had heard, which was still clearly there. With a lump in my throat, I looked underneath the grill, and what I saw shook me to my core. The grill gas line, which consisted of a tough synthetic rubber-coated coating over a not insubstantial metal core had probably nickel-sized holes chewed through its side near where it connects to the burners. Gas was visibly and rapidly pouring out of the hole and spreading into and all around the enclosed area at the bottom of the grill. Several other bite marks were also apparent on the line. I rushed to turn off the tank valve and then stood way back from the grill to let the gas dissipate, all the while shocked that I had not blown myself up. As I stood there wide-eyed, I looked into the backyard and I saw my nemesis perched on two legs, watching me intently. The scientific part of my mind tends to think that this must have been a coincidence, as the squirrel had a proven chewing history and it frequently was in our backyard anyway. However, I cannot help but consider that maybe the squirrel had grown tired of my continued harassment and had decided to get even. Thanks for reading. I love the show. Keep up the great work. Yours sincerely, 
Dan. I was on the edge of my seat, Dan. <laughs> well, like I said, we received that uh, email, uh, what, uh, several weeks back. So I hope Dan's still okay in the squirrels, uh, or at least he's worked it out with the squirrel nation. Well, I think this was supposed to be 15 years ago, but maybe your squirrels might have a long memory. Yeah, or the, the, yeah, the, there's the memory of the individual squirrel. But remember, the, uh, the, the cranium squirrels, they're, they're right. the ones who uh, hold the grudges. <laughs> okay, this next message is from our listener, Amelia. Amelia writes, hey, Joe and Robert, your podcast on squirrels was illuminating. Thanks to your efforts, a decade-long mystery has been solved. Let me explain. As an undergrad, I took a lot of walks along the bluff outside my campus. Early my freshman year on one of these walks, I saw something extraordinary. A fuzzy mammal, alarmingly flat and wide, scurrying across the quad. I was so surprised by this weird rodent, I thought I'd misidentified a rat or gray squirrel. Subsequent sightings, however, laid waste to my doubts. There were dozens of them, typically clustered along the tree line behind my dorm. A friend reported similar sightings, chalking it up to common squirrels that had been run over and inexplicably survived. I had my doubts about this conclusion and began searching in vain for online information on what I dubbed the pancake squirrel. (laughs) When college ended, I moved to an apartment in the same area. I continued to see pancake squirrels hustling through parks and even around a nearby quarry. Not until I listened to your podcast and grew curious about the California ground squirrel did I discover my answer. Following your first episode, I Googled California ground squirrel and immediately recognized my beloved pancakes. <laughs> I didn't know that the species lived in Portland, Oregon, but the local population seems to be thriving. Thanks again for helping solve a mystery and keep up the good work. Sincerely, Amelia. I'm glad we could uh, dispel the notion of essentially zombie squirrels. Flat zombie squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it is interesting how um, just noting the differences in squirrel species. Uh, I I recently rewatched the horror film It Follows. Oh, uh, it's a great one. Yeah, after th- three years of trying to get my my wife to watch it, uh, she finally gave in and and loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a scene where one of the characters is uh, in a swimming pool in the backyard and she's staring up at the the trees and the sky. And there's a scene where a, a squirrel. Uh, is making its way across uh, a power line or something or you know a telephone line, and instantly the what what occurs to me is like that is not like the squirrels we have here. Like clearly this is a Michigan squirrel. Mm-hmm. It's um it's it's a slightly different species of some sort. I haven't checked to see exactly which species it, it is, but uh, it's clearly not the the same uh, creature that we have uh, here in the the, the Georgian uh, environment. You know, Robert, you have just made me think. I have a mission now in life, <laughs> and the mission is to make squirrels a spooky animal. You know, there are inherently spooky animals. There's the bat, there's the spider, there's the wolf, uh, the children of the night, the the animals that are automatically associated with Halloween and spooky times and vampires and all that. We got to make squirrels one of those animals. We got to get them into the club. Yeah, if you can do it safely without uh, endangering the species, because that's unfortunately the other side of it, right, is animals... uh, that have long been considered spooky have often suffered for it. Oh, well, yeah, certainly I don't want to encourage uh, squirrel culling the way there would be like wolf culling. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Has it has it really harmed uh, – well, I was going to say has it harmed bats. It yes, probably it has. has. It yeah. has definitely harmed bats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you if we establish it as like squirrels are dark but somehow holy creatures, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, they should not be messed with. Uh, but they represent something, uh, you know, dark and foreboding, then uh, I think I could get on board with that. All right, we have one last listener mail for you here, and it's a pretty long one, so we're going to break this one up. Okay. Uh, Robert, do you want to go first? I'll go first. first. Yeah, I'll just start reading, and uh, when I I can't go anymore, I'll, uh, I'll tag out. Okay. This comes to us from Mako. Dear Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Hello, my name is Mako. I'm uh, 19 years old, and about a year ago, I started listening to your show as my first regular podcast and have been a frequent listener ever since. I've listened to uh, episodes from throughout the show's history and love the work by all your show's various hosts. I have greatly appreciated all the wonderful information, conversation, and humor of the episodes and have just felt a real connection to the show since it's right up my alley. My whole life, I have spent many hours of every day engaging with the world and learning about all the wonderful things uh, in it 
through books, documentaries, walks, exploration, artistic outlets, conversation, and Wikipedia. <laughs> I have always been fascinated with many scientific, natural, cultural, and historical topics, and have always loved storytelling and fiction. I have filled my head with information about the many wonderful things in this world and universe and always thought to learn more about them. That's why this show feels right at my alley. In the last couple of years, I haven't been able to read, walk, create, and explore as much as I used to or as much as I would like to, but listening to your show as I go about my daily routine has helped to fill in some of the gaps. For that, I am truly grateful. Anyways, today I wanted to share some experiences I have on the subject of your recent episode, Squirrels. My family and I currently live in the San Joaquin part of Central Valley with our flock of several hundred free-range chickens and have so for four summers. This is our fourth. In our time here, we have, uh, have experienced nothing short of terror at the hands of the squirrels. <laughs> First, a little context. The squirrels around here are a, are California ground squirrels. Uh, they are not chiefly arboreal squirrels. They usually live in fairly open, dry areas and, and dig deep, winding burrows in the ground that in con- concentrations can deform the local area. In their regular environment, wetlands and oak woodland check the squirrel's ability to dig burrows and provide uh, habitats uh, for squirrel predators. The problem is that 99% of, of California's wetlands have been destroyed and much of the valley's oak trees too. In their place has risen endless wide open farmland and semi-urban areas that have proven prime squirrel habitat. As well, uh, many squirrel predators, rattlesnakes, hawks, coyotes, have been accidentally or purposely driven out. The result is a place like ours. Uh Uh-oh. On the property we live on, there are thousands of squirrels and tens of thousands more along nearby canals and in neighboring fields. This is obviously a problem for many reasons, but even more since they prey on our baby chickens. From the smallest chicks to the ones pushing adult, the squirrels have attacked countless chicks. Although they often attack them in the open, uh, what they'll usually do is wait behind vegetation, fences, or and in their burrows and pop out at chicks. They'll grab them uh, with their claws and bite them on their arms and legs, main nerves to disable them before dragging them back to their burrows or just violently dismembering them where they are. Either way, they essentially chew them to death. Think Pennywise. Remember that opening scene from It? That's essentially what happens. Wow. So the chicks are peering in the storm, storm uh, the sewer, the sewer grate, <laughs> and uh, they're saying, like, my boat. <laughs> okay, I'll pick up from here. Mako continues, but the similarities don't end there. Remember the burrows? Well, they're all over the yard. Hundreds of burrows that form a sewer-like system across the property. It's like a dairy with 500 Pennywises. That's dairy, <laughs> the town in, in it, D-E-R-R-Y, with 500 Pennywises. And the death toll is about the same. Our chickens are free-range, so being picked off by predators now and then is pretty much unavoidable. But the squirrels have proven to be something else entirely. Keep in mind before I continue that we only have a few hundred chickens at any given moment. Moment. Although it is often difficult to determine cause of death, especially with disappeared chicks, by carefully examining the clues of each disappearance and considering the likelihood of all possible causes, we have determined that the squirrels have most likely killed in excess of a hundred chickens over four summers. That is more than all other predators combined. And that list has at various points included opossums, coyotes, dogs, humans, cats, snakes, eagles, hawks, falcons, unidentified mammalian creatures raccoons, ants, and more, including the unstoppable force of nature, the ghost hawk. All of them are outsiders, though. If a chicken is surrounded by two dozen coyotes, they're going to be up a tree faster than you can shout, yote. If a chicken is surrounded by two dozen squirrels, though, they won't realize something is wrong until it's too late. Why shouldn't they? These are the same animals that eat out of seed piles with them, and the squirrels have used this to their advantage. Robert, you uh, you were talking about a study we looked at in the episode that, that mentioned something about this, right? The, the insinuation predation? Yes. Yeah, that, that, uh, that definitely came up, yes. Where the squirrels just sort of get you used to them because they're like, oh, I'm just a harmless little squirrel. I'll hang out right next to you. Yeah, I forget the exact terminology, but it was something to the effect of uh, cultivating uh, prey tolerance or something to that effect. Yeah. Okay, uh, picking up in Mako's message. um, uh, Squirrels have used that to their advantage. Groups have lost half their members. Big rooster chicks have been killed defending their siblings. One time, three members of a group were killed in 24 hours and a fourth was permanently disabled. 
Another time, a tree fell, and chicks that went near the tree started disappearing. Moms have fended off multiple squirrels that corralled their babies simultaneously. An entire group of 11 was systematically hunted and killed, the only time this has ever happened in our flock's history. So many chicks have been killed by the squirrels, it has stunted the population growth significantly, and they don't stop at the chicks. We have found countless songbirds, rabbits, small snakes, and most commonly, California ground squirrels killed by the squirrels. Of course, we've taken many preventative measures with some success and killed many hundreds of squirrels with little effect on their numbers. One of the problems is how tenacious the squirrels are. There was one instance where a squirrel had a struggling chick bigger than its head in its mouth, and I saw it. I gave chase, yelling at it, but the squirrel did not drop the baby. When I've done the same with coyotes, they'll usually drop whatever chicken they're holding. The squirrel, however, just kept jumping over foot-deep holes and tree roots and eventually diving under a fence, still carrying the baby. The tenacity isn't invincible, though. When we put seed out for the chickens, they eat relatively slowly and don't stand a chance against the squirrels that can just shove a whole scoopful in their cheek, uh, in their cheek pouches. However, the squirrels and other birds can start foraging about an hour and a half earlier in the mornings than the squirrels can, so we can put food out early in the morning so our birds won't starve. One other help we've gotten in the battle against the squirrels is from a local egret. One egret has learned to wait in the fields when the grass is long and fork the squirrels as they exit their burrows. It'll then fly off with the squirming rodent, presumably to slide it down its gullet somewhere. Well, that's probably the most positive note I can leave off on, so I'll (laughs) cut this short. But I would like to weigh in on the king of the rats debate. I believe it was Joe who said that the squirrels could be considered king since they have an altitude advantage. However, if you take a walk in the woods at night in places like here, guess what you'll hear chittering and skittering and squeaking in the tree canopies all around you? Rats. Ah, the rats in the trees. Well, this was a delightful email, like really a a nice uh, summary of just nature unbalanced, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, just talking about in general uh, how the the California wilds have been unbalanced. And then if you have, uh, uh, you know, some sort of domesticated farm activity uh, with an outside species, Mm -hmm. uh, what does that do to the surrounding predators? Yeah. Well, a farm is an unnatural ecosystem. And when you try to do some kind of like farming that's not clearly surrounded by boundaries that keep it separate from the rest of the the surrounding ecosystem. Uh, Which you ultimately cannot do. I yeah. mean, if nothing else, you're going to have to deal with uh, – uh, potential pathogens and whatnot. So, yeah. uh, I mean, that's just that's just part of the uh, the exercise. Yeah. But still, a lovely tale. I enjoyed uh, hearing all of it. A lovely tale of slaughter. <laughs> Thus is the life of uh, the squirrel. All right, so there you have it. A bunch of listener mails uh, and some additional uh, host uh, comments about squirrels, a.k.a. the skugs. Um, Hope you enjoyed it. And certainly if you have additional insights and field reports of squirrels, uh, write in. We'd love to hear hear from you. We probably won't do another devoted, uh, you know, dedicated squirrel listener mail episode, but we'll do more listener mail so we may touch – uh, touch in on the subject uh, again in the future. Yeah, this has been fascinating, especially to hear from people who have a lot of hands-on experience with uh, the world of the wild skug. So, so thank you for getting in touch. And as always, keep those messages coming. In the meantime, head on over to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. That's where you'll find uh, all the episodes of the podcast going back all the way to the very beginning. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find that tab for our store where you can find that cool Cambrian uh, logo we were talking about. And, you know, at some point, I'd, I would love to get a, a Skug shirt in there. I know we've had some some listener requests for some Skug merchandise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking maybe you know, something that looks like a Slayer T-shirt, except it's Skugs. I oh, don't know. that's good. Yes, it, they do lend themselves well to that sort of interpretation. But but uh, we'll see. We'll work on that. Uh, we'll work on getting that uh, uh, in place. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi let us know uh, how you found out about the show where you listen from that kind of stuff you can email us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Thank you.